Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I am excited to be watching a movie that's going to rank on the list. Are you sure? Very sure. Okay, so this will be Combo Breaker, because the last three episodes... Yes, have not resulted in (laughs) a movie on the list. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of the, like, return of the horror genre to Hollywood. It's been a little bumpy. Yeah, like, well, I feel like, you know, 46 was the last big year, and then we've had, like, what, a couple movies in 47 from Hollywood, one in 48, one or two in 49, maybe one that, like, actually ranked in 49, and then, like, I think one movie in 51 that ranked... And now here we are in 1953. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because horror's undergoing a bit of a transformation Mm -hmm. right now, it was getting shut down basically um, because every studio was shutting down their B-movie units. Now those units are coming back in, trying to do quote-unquote horror, as we've seen with like the Black Castle from last episode, Um, but also now kicking into science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, which has come in since, like, Destination Moon, really. Yeah. In, like, 49 or 50 or whatever. Yeah, and the the horror movies of the 50s that have actually managed to rank so far have been the sci-fi ones, Thing from Another World and Man from Planet X. The Man from Planet X. Whereas, like, the other stuff that hasn't ranked has been the stuff that's been more old-fashioned and, like, looking back to earlier versions of horror cinema and trying to, like, find a way forward from there. Yeah, and, like, early. Yes. Like, the bat kind of early. And it's going to be, I think, very interesting to think about that with regard to today's movie. Okay. So today we are watching House of Wax. Awesome. uh, From 1953. You don't want to be living in a house of wax come summer. (laughs) Very true. Listeners might be familiar with this movie, it was a pretty big deal uh, for reasons that we'll be talking about. But if they aren't, they might be more familiar, depending on age, with the 2006... Paris Hilton. Yes. The 2006 remake, House of Wax, with Paris Hilton. What listeners who are familiar with either movie might not be aware of is that the 1953 House of Wax is itself a remake of Warner Brothers... Mystery of the Wax Museum from way back in 1932. Yeah. Now, it's not like every movie with wax originates from that movie. There's just a real through line in terms of plot adaptation. Just because these are the movies that we've talked about that have wax in the title or wax in the plot line, anything like that, we're not just connecting dots here with with silly string. No. um, I think the proof in that is that all three movies are from Warner Brothers. Fair, yes. So, you know, it's it's a plot the studio owns the rights to. <laughs> but to back out from this movie a little bit and take a broader view of the landscape of entertainment around us here in the year 1953, 
it is sort of time for us to address kind of what the elephant in the room is by this point, which is television. Yeah. By 1953, television is a thing. Like, I Love Lucy's been on the air long enough that, like, Lucy's having her kid on I Love Lucy in 1953. Um, There were four networks up and running and broadcasting in the United States at this time. ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. How, okay. CBS, Columbia Broadcasting System. That makes sense. And the Dumont Television Network. Is that like a family name? Is that a state? No, that's like a family name. Okay. Oh, I'm thinking of Vermont. Yes. In Britain, you had the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. And in Canada, we had the CBC, the Canadian Canadian Broadcasting Broadcasting Corporation. Corporation. So, yeah, TV's becoming a big deal. And it's starting to become what's recognizable as TV to us today. 1950s television, especially early 50s television, was mostly all live and had a lot of different things going on. A lot of anthology series were popular back then. Mm -hmm. And you had, like, these 90-minute shows that basically did what we would now call, like, TV movies live. We talked a little about that in last week's episode with Lon Chaney doing a version of Frankenstein like that. Sort of like live TV plays, almost. But on the subject of TV movies, which, which, you know, aren't quite what they're going to become, because they're, as I said, these like live TV plays more than what we recognize today as TV movies. Um, So we haven't had to like talk about this yet, because it hasn't mattered. But here on Scream Scene... We watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. Yeah. But what do we do with TV movies, Ben? Yeah. So for the purposes of this show, we are defining movies as theatrically released feature films. No Trolls 2 up in here. (laughs) So going forward, uh, even though it means we're probably going to lose some cool stuff, we are not going to be looking at TV movies. We're not looking at direct-to-video. Um, we're not looking at direct-to-streaming. Uh, if it has, like, some kind of theatrical release, you know, that might be enough to make some exceptions for stuff that is more typically in one of those other boxes. But it's just the only way forward, guys, because... There's so much. By the, like, 1970s and 80s and 90s and stuff, like the amount of direct-to-video horror movies is so much. And so much of that stuff is just crap. And it's just wading through a swamp. And this is this is one way to cut it down to a reasonable, doable, maybe achievable <laughs> number of, of episodes of this show. Quote-unquote achievable. Right. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so we won't be looking at TV movies. That being said, um, one of our Patreon goals is once we hit $150 a month, we'll be covering horror-adjacent movies in bonus episodes Mm -hmm. um, each month. We'd be happy to cover non-theatrically released horror movies in a format like that. Yeah. But it's just that, like, the regular format of the show, it would just become even more of a, like insurmountable tasks. Yeah, y'all are like, oh, when are you guys going to get to, like, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees? And it's like, it's going to be longer if you make me watch, like, direct-to-video shit. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think I think it's it, that's a great thing to say, is, like, 
if we do hit that first goal, then there'll be another goal, and maybe that goal will involve watching some key direct-to-video stuff. Yeah. So, getting back to television. Why are we talking about this? Well, we are talking about this because cinema attendance had dropped from 90 million in 1948 to 46 million by 1951. Ooh. Dropped by half in three years. Yeah. At the same time, you had the major studios having to divest themselves of the theater chains they owned, while simultaneously losing viewership to television. So as you can imagine, the execs were in a bit of a panic to do something to get audiences back into theaters. Mm -hmm. And the answer, predictably, to anyone who has lived through the recent how do we get audiences into theaters now with piracy and streaming era that we have lived in, was gimmicks. Yes. Now, in today's world, maybe in the before times, before COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, these gimmicks would be like the rumbly chairs, mm-hmm. or like the spritz of air into <laughs> your face so you feel Tom Cruise breathing on you. I mean, I would also consider stuff like IMAX and Christopher Nolan and Tarantino like insisting 70 on millimeter. Right, sure. 70 millimeter showings and also of course the rise of 3D as like being an expected part of blockbuster movies now since 2009. Keep that stuff in mind because it's exactly what they did in the 1950s. Every step of the way. But to come back to the early 1950s. Yeah. So the idea was that the 12 to 21 inch TV sets of the time could be trumped by making the theatrical experience something grander, bigger sound, bigger picture, uh, make it something TV can't replicate. All of this should probably sound familiar. Absolutely. So one of the first major efforts in this regard was the development of Cinerama. To put this simply, Cinerama is a process that involves shooting with three side-by-side cameras set to focus on the same point using lenses that have the same focal length as the human eye. Then those three films would be projected in the cinema using three projectors simultaneously at different angles towards a concave curved movie screen so that the audience sitting watching it would have the sensation of being immersed in the film. Sure. It's like you're in the movie because the screen wraps from all the way around your periphery vision if you're looking straight forward. And you had the projectors, you know, shooting across to shoot in across the screen with this film that was shot simultaneously so that you got one image that went across this big panoramic screen and, you know, shot at the same focal length as the human eye to give it that natural you-are-there feeling. Cinerama debuted in 1952, and to experience it even today is pretty awe-inspiring. It's, like, it's pretty spectacular. Um, But... If it sounds hella expensive and super complicated... Yeah, from 
the making to the exhibition of it. Yeah, that's because it is. <laughs> um, besides the fact that you have to construct a special theater just to show it, any error in like the filming or the projecting could easily ruin the illusion, right? From like scratches on the film to dust on the lens or to the fact that just having three cameras and three projectors means there's a much greater chance of something mechanically going wrong. Like, if you have, like, a jam in one of the reels of the three projectors while the movie's shooting, then, like, a third of the screen goes dark, right? And all of the film strips have to be in perfect synchronization. So getting that back running perfectly again... It it reminds me when we were talking about theaters having to do renovations for the sound equipment. Right. And how much of an expense that was. So Cinerama became this huge hit in the, like, you know, three or four big American cities that could afford to have one Cinerama theater in it, you know, and otherwise was just, like, super expensive for other theaters to, like, try to replicate. Cinerama is the 1950s IMAX. That's kind of the best way to think about it from a modern perspective. So over at 20th Century Fox, they were working on... Because Cinerama was a success. It was a hit. It just... You couldn't do it widespread. So over at 20th Century Fox, they were working to develop a competing, but much simpler and much less expensive process. So, using a special anamorphic lens, you could shoot a film and have the image the camera records be twice as wide as normal but then get squeezed by this anamorphic lens onto the same square size of film that's always been used then you could project that squeezed film back use a similar anamorphic lens and the image would become uh, expanded out to that wide image and thus you could get that wide feel of Cinerama on a flat screen with one camera, one projector, and regular-ass film. And Fox trademarked this technique under the name Cinemascope. Yes. But today we basically just call it widescreen. Yeah. That's what widescreen movies are. And so, yes, widescreen was the 1950s version of what today we call, like, Limax where you're watching, like, something that's been... Oh, this is IMAX, but it's not, like, actually an IMAX reel or an IMAX projector. You're just seeing a regular movie in an IMAX theater. Yeah. Yeah. Cinemascope was easier than Cinerama by far, because all it really required was the anamorphic lens. Though it did require directors to sort of learn how to frame shots for this wider aspect ratio now. Yeah, I can imagine there were a lot of cases of like, oh shit, the coffee cup is in the in view. Well, and just like, well, wait a minute, if the screen is this wide, how do I do a close-up? Like, yeah. How do you frame a close-up without having just like big empty swaths of frame with nothing in it, right? For sure. The first film to debut in Cinemascope was the biblical epic The Robe, Uh, on September 16th, 1953. So, while Fox had been developing Cinemascope, they had been approached by these two brothers, Milton and Julian Gunsberg, and they offered Fox the use of a different process, which they called natural vision. Fox turned it down, 
as did Columbia, as did Paramount. MGM expressed some interest. Ultimately, those negotiations never went anywhere. And so the Gunsberg brothers were just shopping around this technique. A technique for 3D film. Mm. A new and different way to compete with television. They were about to roll in the money. (laughs) So the basics of 3D film go back even before the invention of the motion picture to what is called stereoscopic photography. The idea here is really simple. Uh, Depth in human vision comes from having two eyes. (laughs) So, well, yeah. Yeah, it's no, binocular totally, vision. Absolutely. Uh, so, <laughs> if you record the same image from slightly offset positions from two different cameras, and then display the two photos to each eye independently when you are looking at them, presto, the brain sees it in three dimensions. Uh, you can sort of think about this effect uh, from like if you ever had like a ViewMaster as a kid. Where you like looked into the the, the oh yeah the thing and the thing and, with the slides yeah 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 and the way that worked is there were two slides uh, one for each of your eyes so in the early days of film at the turn of the century many attempts were made to create stereoscopic motion pictures it just seemed to be the thing to do that would make sense but as movies shifted from the Nickelodeon where you mm-hmm. looked into a little thing and watched the movies, to the theater where you're sitting and there's all these different people. It's a communal experience. It becomes much more difficult to pull off stereoscopy because you need to tailor it for each audience member. Because Absolutely. the trick is each eye seeing the two images independently in order to fool your brain. Yeah. So, throughout the 1920s, various experiments... Various experiments were made to try and bring stereoscopic film to a mass audience. One is anaglyph, uh, which is the method where you have a red image and a cyan image, and then you display those over top of one another, and then you wear glasses that have a red lens and a cyan lens, so each lens cuts out one of the images, and you're seeing just one in each eye. The other method is called alternating frame, where you have two projectors... One showing the left eye, one showing the right eye, alternating frame by frame. And then you're wearing powered electronic glasses that are synced to the projectors so that each eye is only seeing the left or the right because there are shutters in the glasses. Ridiculous. Both of these methods, as you can probably tell, have significant downsides and neither caught on in great number. The significant breakthrough for 3D film which is still the secret of it today, came when Harvard student Edwin Land created a filter to reduce glare from car headlights. Sure. Using polarization. Yeah. A process by which the light waves are rotated by a filter, and therefore the filter reflects all of the light waves except for the ones that are at the same rotation as the filter, basically cutting down the amount of light that can pass through said filter. This he patented as the Polaroid filter, which would turn out to have way more applications from sunglasses to camera filters. Um, Yeah, I bet that guy made a lot of money. mm -hmm. Yeah, the Polaroid company still exists and is a very big deal. Yeah. By the late 1930s, 
people were starting to experiment with using polarization for 3D in many, like, test films and, like, demo films, the kind of stuff that would get shown at, like, World's Fairs. Sure, it's it's building off of the basic red and cyan lens mm-hmm. technique. It's just using a filter rather than colored lenses. Yeah, so in this system, you have two projectors, which are showing the two images superimposed onto the screen, synced up at the same time. But each projector has a different Polaroid filter on it. So the angle that the light is being shown at is different in each projector. Then the audience wears Polaroid glasses. So, you know, basically just sunglasses. Um, But the trick is each lens in those glasses has a different filter as well. One blocks the light from one of the two projectors, the other blocks the other light. So again, you're only seeing one image in each lens, so that you get one image in each eye, and the 3D illusion is created in the brain. While this system combined the cheapness of anaglyph with the picture quality of alternating frame, it was not initially adapted because the United States prioritized the use of stereoscopic photography for military applications during World War II. Yeah. As usual, technological advance often walks hand-in-hand with uh, military application. Yep. So that brings (laughs) us back around to the Gunzberg brothers. Uh, We've actually run into one of them before. Oh. Milton Gunzberg wrote The Devil Commands, starring Boris Karloff for Columbia, (laughs) way back in 1941. And he was like, well... Did that. Now on to inventing things. <laughs> the brothers de- all coming up Milton. Yeah. The brothers developed what they called the natural vision process. Uh, and in this process, when you are shooting the 3D film, the film is shot by two cameras who are facing each other, basically perpendicular from what you're actually filming. Between the two cameras that are facing each other, you place two mirrors that are at slight angles. You do this so that then the light bounces from the mirrors into the cameras from the perpendicular spot that you are actually trying to film. The reason you do this is because if you think of the way you're trying to get stereoscopy to work, you're trying to replicate the way that human eyes see depth. The space between your eyes is very narrow. It's the width of your nose. The space between two camera lenses, if you're just taking two 35mm cameras and putting them right next to each other, is going to be a lot wider than that, because cameras are big. Uh, So it doesn't quite replicate how human sight works. This way, by using mirrors, you can place the cameras kind of wherever, and they shoot towards the mirrors, and the mirrors are focused so that each mirror is seeing the same spot, and then projecting that back to the cameras. And in that way, you can get them to focus on a point that is much closer and therefore replicate human sight. I don't understand, but that is okay. It's easier to explain if you can see it, but this is an audio medium. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm like listening and I'm trying to visualize and I'm like, I don't understand. (laughs) It's pretty complicated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, very, very smart people came up with this stuff. Yeah. And we are just podcasters. Right. So, the first feature film shot in natural vision uh, was Buona Devil, which... Sorry, what? Buona Devil. 
It is a <laughs> African adventure B movie. Oh boy. Well, I guess you know, low stakes. Mm. So, Buana Devil, therefore, is the first feature-length film in 3D, color, and sound. Uh, it was shot for $323,000. It was released by United Artists in Polaroid 3D. Critics panned it, but audiences loved it. It made $5 million at the box office. Holy! And suddenly, the major studios came calling for natural vision. <laughs> and the Goonsberg brothers looked down and whispered, Yeah, give us your money. <laughs> the marketing for these stereoscopic films is where we get the term 3D. Uh, obviously short for three-dimensional, but just like the idea of just going 3D with the 3 and the D, yeah. that's from movie marketing. For sure. Very soon... We were in a race to the first major studio to release a 3D film. Columbia won that race with the 3D noir Man in the Dark. But it would be overshadowed by Warner Brothers' effort, which was released two days later. <laughs> so when deciding on what their 3D picture was going to be, basically Jack Warner looked through, like, what we would now call Warner Brothers IP library and picked something that seemed like it would be kind of easy to shoot that they already owned the rights to and that would like have elements that would be appropriate for like the same kind of sensationalism that 3D kind of encourages. And so what he decided to do was to make a remake of Mystery at the Wax Museum. Mm-hmm. The wax just comes right for you. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's funny as well because Mystery of the Wax Museum is the very last two-tone Technicolor film. Mm -hmm. And so it was already kind of like part of a gimmicky yeah. aspect of the theater. Yeah. We covered Mystery of the Wax Museum way back in episode three. 38. Wow. So over a hundred episodes ago. Wow. Um, I mean, it's from 1933. So we were that's so like... young. <laughs> so it's 20 years ago mm -hmm. for, for these guys. Um, and we enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. There was a good discussion about whether this counts as horror, which mm -hmm. is interesting. And to just kind of set the scene and remind everyone what it's about, it was... I guess technically the second urban horror movie, and I think Warner Brothers' second horror movie. That's right. The first being Dr. X, um, which was more of the gimmicky two-tone Technicolor, mm -hmm. um, but due to contract negotiations between Technicolor and Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers had to make Mystery of the Wax Museum to really finish up their contract with Technicolor to do like another two-tone Technicolor movie. But because it is just kind of like riding the tailcoats of Dr. X, it's the same cast and crew. We have Michael Curtiz as the director, um, who would, you know, do Casablanca later, you know, mm -hmm. that Michael Curtiz. And we have Faye Ray as a character named Charlotte, Lionel Atwill as Ivan Igor, mm -hmm. um, our main baddie. Mm -hmm. And Glenda Farrell as Monkey Girl Reporter Florence. Yes. At this time in 1953, 
they would have thought that this was a lost film. Interesting. Actually, because in 1948, Technicolor discarded negatives, um, and Mystery of the Wax Museum was not rediscovered in the vault mm-hmm. until 1978. Interesting. Yeah, so I wonder if that's maybe also why they thought to remake this. Right, sure, because like they aren't going to be re-releasing the old version anytime soon. Exactly. Yeah. Part of our discussion about whether this was horror or not, it did ultimately get ranked on the list. It's currently sitting at number 86, which is, you know, respectable. Yeah, we're nearly at 150 films on the list, so... So it's respectable. It's yeah. like halfway. Um, and part of our contention about it was because it has a horrific... Prologue and climax, but the middle bit is a bit too um, mystery thriller, spunky girl reporter reporting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 the middle part's a Warner Brothers movie. Yeah, exactly. In the prologue, Ivan Igor, again Lionel Atwell, is an amazing wax sculptor in London in 1921, and he does it for the love of the art, for the creation. And um, some investors come by and they're like, oh, beautiful, love your stuff, let's put it in the museum. But I have to go on a trip, so I'll, we'll discuss the details later. And Igor's like, perfect, awesome. But his museum business partner, Joe Worth, is like, hey, we're not making any money, so uh, I'm going to burn everything down for the insurance money. Mm-hmm. Igor is not happy about this, so they fight, and um, Worth knocks... Igor out and burns the place down, uh, and it's a bit horrific because, like, the wax figures are, are like, melting and yeah. you know, fire going up. And Igor was left inside. <laughs> Igor was left inside, that too. You know, the murder. It's 12 years later, 1933, in New York, and a new wax museum is opening, and we see that Ivan Igor survived. He um, is now in a wheelchair and unable to do his art, his sculptures, so, in opening this wax museum, he is instructing others in how to make the statues. Cut to spunky reporter Florence sent to report on the suicide of a notable model. And she breaks the story on someone stealing bodies, namely the model's body, from the morgue. Florence's roommate Charlotte's boyfriend, Ralph, <laughs> works with Igor And so the two girls get to see the exhibit before the official opening. And that's when Florence recognizes one of the wax figures as being the missing dead model. The mystery opens up to reveal that Igor, who has a kind of big burly goon on his side, uh, a big deaf mute guy named Hugo, Mm -hmm. going and stealing bodies, then taking them into the museum's basement to cover the bodies in wax, to make the perfect statue. Yeah, because, like, his original statues were, like, so lifelike, but now he can't, like, reproduce that because he's all injured and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And Igor has his eyes on Charlotte next. Mm. He attacks Charlotte, who, in the fight, breaks Igor's face, which is revealed to be a mask, and uh, he actually has a, a melted face from um, the prologue. And Florence leads the cops to Charlotte's rescue just in time. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic movie. Yeah. Yeah. It cost $220,000, and they made $300,000. Yeah, so it was mildly successful. Mildly successful. Um, But that was kind of it for T-Tone Technicolor. Um, It, as a process, just 
you know, people were moving on to bigger and better things, namely three-tone Technicolor yeah. once the um, exclusivity rights with Disney wore off. Uh, so that was kind of the last two-tone Technicolor thing we saw. Yeah. As far as our thoughts on the film, we found that it was trying to do too much with too many subplots. You can really see that in the middle bit with like the mystery and the girl reporter and there's also like the boyfriend and then Florence has a love interest who I haven't even mentioned and like mm-hmm. there's bootleggers and and there's a whole bunch of things. Just a whole urban crime horror movie jumbled into one thing. But the episode itself is called um a passable plate of spaghetti because they just kind of threw everything at the wall. Yeah. Just threw all the spaghetti at the wall and then ate what stuck, I guess. <laughs> but we did like the characters. We did like Lionel Atwell. Uh, we really liked Glenda Farrell and Favre, even though Favre didn't have a huge amount to do. And you noted, and this was kind of fun, that it was nice that it was a mad artist kind of villain rather than a mad scientist. Mm. Um, still with the idea of, like, his obsession has taken him too far, but it's nice to see someone other than a mad scientist. I think uh, the other notable mad artist we had was in House of Horrors yes. with Vondo Hatton as, like, the big brute. Yeah, who was also a sculptor. Yeah. I guess also, like, the Phantom and, like, Phantom derivatives would count for that as well. Yeah, actually we likened... Misty of the Wax Museum to Phantom quite a lot um, because, like, older guy, melty face, right. lives in a basement. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, like, the two-tone Technicolor aspect of everything. Part of the reason why we felt justified to rank it is because it was 1933. It was pretty early in horror, so it was okay that it wasn't, like, that good, pure horror. Mm-hmm. Um and around 1933 is when we started seeing a bit of a pushback to horror. People were calling Mystery of the Wax Museum as um, far too gruesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're trying to like temper you know, how much horror is going out onto the screen. Right. Um, so that's kind of why we, we ranked it still. Um, I'm sure that if we had seen it in maybe in the 40s mm-hmm. or something, we would have determined that it was not horror but you know in the place and time that it came out it was horror um and you know it did fairly well like i said number 86 on the list that's like right in the middle so i think that house of wax has some good potential here for sure because it was really warner brothers execution so what's sort of interesting about house of wax is that the screenplay has a lot of differences from the original movie but very little of those differences are to modernize it in any way. So the screenplay for this film is by Crane Wilbur. And we know Wilbur, uh, of course. He was a silent-era matinee idol turned writer who penned The Monster in 1925. Oh, okay. And The Amazing Mr. X in 1948. And he had been doing quite well as a writer-director for Eagle Lion Pictures until the sale of that firm to United Artists. Put him out of work. Yeah. Crane Wilbur has been, like, writing hokey horror mystery thriller things since the 20s. Yeah. And so he's who's put on this movie. In terms of differences from Mystery of the Wax Museum, Mystery of the Wax Museum was set in the 1930s, contemporary to when the movie was made. Yeah. House of Wax is actually set at the turn of the century, like an early 1900s setting. 
Um, the girl reporter urban crime stuff is completely jettisoned. We're just with, like, our wax artist and, like, the Fay Ray kind of character and, like, her boyfriend, right? We still have... That would be good. That would help focus it. Mm-hmm. We still have the big deaf-mute assistant. Everyone's names have been changed uh, as characters, and, yeah, it's it's got this, like, different sort of focus because of the change in time period. To direct the film, Warner Brothers hired Andre de Toth, who was born Tooth Andre Antel Mihai in 1913 in Hungary. He had a degree in law, but he went into the Hungarian film industry, first as a writer and then as a director. Nice. In 1939, he left Hungary for England and then arrived in L.A. in 1942, becoming a... Hollywood movie director. Warner gave DeToth a budget of $1,250,000 for House of Wax. That's a lot of money. Yeah. The biggest irony of all of this, however, is that DeToth had lost an eye at a young age. <laughs> so he can't... He can't, he himself cannot experience 3D. Correct. He wore an eye patch. He couldn't see 3D. He didn't understand what the appeal of the gimmick was or, like, what it was supposed to be doing with this, like, super complicated camera rig. None of that really <laughs> mattered to him at all. Oh. Another fun fact about the director of this movie, once you get past the he has one eye and he's directing a 3D movie thing is that at the time of making this film, he was actually married to Veronica Lake. Oh, dang. Yeah. So. So together, they have. Um, two eyes. Two eyes. Yeah, because he's got the patch and she's got the Pikachu haircut. Exactly. Yeah. The producer of this film is Brian Foy, who used to be the head of Warner Brothers' B-movie unit until they got rid of it in the middle of World War II. Oh. So it's kind of cool to see him back at Warner Brothers producing these movies again. They were like, the war's over. You can have your job back. <laughs> it's just nice when, like, to see some of these folks who did, like, get laid off uh, kind of bounce back. Absolutely. And it does mean that he is very experienced. Yes. The film's cinematographer is Peveril Marley, who is one of only six cinematographers with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He got his start in the silent era shortly after graduating from high school. He shot the silent version of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments in 1923. He shot the original version of Chicago in 1927. He shot Fantomas in 1932, Count of Monte Cristo in 1934, Three Musketeers in 1935 and 1939, and Hound of the Baskervilles in 1939. So this guy has been around for all of these past gimmicks. Yes. <laughs> the film's editor, Rudy Fair, was a German expat who fled the country in 1936 due to his Jewish heritage. He got a job with Warner Brothers as an editor on the strength of his previous editing work in Europe. Two years after this film, he would be made the head of post-production at Warner Brothers, wow. a position he held until 1976. Films that he himself edited include Key Largo in 1948, uh, this film, Dial M for Murder in 1954, 
And then after leaving Warner Brothers, he became the head of post-production for Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope Company. Sure. And he edited Coppola's One from the Heart in 1981 and John Huston's Pritzi's Honor in 1985. He went on to teach editing at UCLA and he passed away in 1999. Bit of a Hollywood legend there. Yeah. So, the film's star, who was established as a major horror figure by this movie. I love Paris Hilton. Is Vincent Price, <laughs> who we haven't seen since 1940's The Invisible Man Returns. And did we really see him? <laughs> <laughs> I love making that joke with those Invisible Man movies. So Price was born in 1911 to a wealthy family in St. Louis, Missouri. He graduated from Yale with a major in English and a minor in art history. He intended to go on to a master's degree in fine arts, but he became drawn to the theater and began acting on stage. He started on film in the late 1930s, establishing himself as a character actor in films such as The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex in 1939, Tower of London that same year, House of the Seven Gables in 1940, Song of Bernadette in 1943, Laura in 1944, Dragon Wick in 1946, and a cameo reprisal of his role as the Invisible Man at the very end of Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. <laughs> he also played Cardinal Richelieu in 1948's version of The Three Musketeers. So it's cool that he's been able to like do stuff outside of horror. Yeah, he he really, up until this point, like, hasn't been a quote-unquote horror actor. He did Invisible Man Returns, but that's it. Everything yeah. else has been more that he is a character actor who you put in, like, period films, you know, when you need someone who has, like... A very distinguished voice. Yes, that kind of urbane quality. Yeah, it, his time in horror is really this decade, right? Yeah, this is going to start it, and then that's going to be the dominant genre of the rest of his career. This is the start of Vincent Price's second career. Yeah. Now, he's playing the Lionel Atwell role, and because House of Wax was going to be shot in 3D and in color, Price's makeup, which was done by Gordon Bow, had to be able to stand up to close scrutiny. This resulted in Price being banned from the studio commissary on days where he was wearing the makeup because he did cause some employees to lose their lunch. Oh. The film's lead actress is then 26-year-old Phyllis Kirk, who changed her last name from Kierkegaard when she began her Broadway career. Isn't that like a philosopher? Yes, yeah. you're correct. So is she related? Uh, no. Okay. She resisted acting in this movie tooth and nail, sure. insisting that she did not wish to be the next Fay Ray, but she was under contract to Warner Brothers. And so she had to do it. Yes. She would go on, however, to say that she had a lot of fun making House of Wax. The second billed actress in the film, Beneath Phyllis Kirk, is 23-year-old Carolyn Jones. Born in Amarillo, Texas, she grew up, that might be Amarillo, Texas, she grew up being um, unable to attend movie theaters due to her asthma. Oh. Because of the smoking. Oh. But she became a movie fan nonetheless from reading celebrity fan magazines. <laughs> I love it. She joined the Pasadena Playhouse at age 17 to study acting, where she was scouted by Paramount. Her first film had been the year before this, and House of Wax was her fifth film. However, today, she is probably best known 
as the original Morticia Adams from the 1960s Adams Family television show. That's why her name is so familiar. That's awesome. In the role of the Death Mute assistant, who is literally named Igor uh, (laughs) in this movie, is a 24-year-old actor named Charles Buczynski. Okay, so they're not going to the usual well that, like, Universal does. Mm. Born in Pennsylvania to a family of Lithuanian immigrant coal miners, Buczynski grew up speaking Lithuanian and only learned English as a teen. His family was extremely poor, and he worked in the mines until he entered the military in World War II. He was a gunner in the Air Force. He won a Purple Heart, did a lot of combat missions. After the war, he worked odd jobs until joining a theatrical group in Philadelphia in 1949. In 1950, he moved with his then-new wife to Hollywood to start taking acting classes and looking for roles. This would be, at this point, still very early in his career. With the anti-communist sentiments of HUAC putting all Hollywood in a scare, in 1954, he changed his name on the advice of his agent, from the very Eastern European-sounding Charles Buczynski to the much more American-sounding Charles Bronson. And he would then go on, of course, to become a major action movie star of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Oh my god! What? Yeah, look forward to 24-year-old Charles Bronson in this movie. Ah! That is so cool. Ben! (laughs) Whoa! Vincent Price's other assistant in the film was played by an actor named Ned Young, who had been acting in Hollywood since 1943. We actually saw him before he was the romantic lead in Dead Men Walk back in 1943. That's the one where um, George Zuko is both Van Helsing and Dracula. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's playing like the Harker role in that movie. Now, Ned Young, the year this movie was released, 1953, would give hostile testimony to HUAC. So, that resulted in his blacklisting, and his name was actually removed from the credits of House of Wax. But, Young would return to Hollywood as a screenwriter, writing Jailhouse Rock in 1957, then winning the Oscar for his screenplay for The Defiant Ones in 1958, and being nominated for another Oscar for his screenplay for Inherit the Wind in 1960. Damn, good for him. Now... Because a 3D film uses two strips of film, House of Wax took advantage of that to print a soundtrack on both films. This, then, made House of Wax one of the first feature films with stereophonic sound. Oh, dang. Yeah. So you had, like, 2.0 for the first time ever. Now, because 3D films use both projectors... Um, they do cause a unique problem for projectionists. When you have to change reels in a movie, the way you do that so that there's no break for the audience is you start up the next reel on the second projector. But that's in use right now. Right. So House of Wax and other 3D feature films included an intermission, despite you know their relatively short running times, like this movie is 88 minutes. Uh, But this intermission allowed for the projectionist to change reels on both projectors. Nice. The film debuted at midnight on April 10th, 1953, (laughs) followed 
by 12 hours of continuous screenings. Oh, wow. Viewers were charged an extra 10 cents on their tickets. Unbelievable. For the the cost of the 3D glasses. Unbelievable. Price took advantage of the dark glasses to attend screenings of the film Incognito. Price would sit at the back of the film watching the movie, and then he would scare moviegoers when it ended by intoning, how did you like it? (laughs) And just freaking everybody out. Now, despite the $1.25 million budget, Detoth completed the film for $618,000. Wow. Warner's gambit of making a 3D film paid off because despite the higher ticket price, House of Wax was a huge hit. It made $23.75 million at the box office. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's a smash hit, Ben. Yes. Price would later credit the success to DeToth's lack of 3D sight, claiming that this meant that the director was more interested in making a good movie than in exploiting the gimmick. Sure. Or being so preoccupied in how to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, while the film was a hit, a hit with audiences, it was panned by critics. The New York Times dubbed it a major disappointment, basically saying that the story was extremely old-fashioned and hokey. And They're was... adapting a 20-year-old script, guys. Come on. And accused Warner Brothers of basically throwing together the movie just to have something to shoot in 3D. That's what they did with the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with this, <laughs> with this critique. The Washington Post said, quote, It's supposed to be a horror movie. And it's horrible, all right. Oh, that's good. And the New Yorker agreed that the story was extremely old-fashioned and corny. Basically, the only thing that critics agreed was good about the movie was worthwhile was the skill with which the 3D effect was achieved. Okay. Today, you can watch House of Wax in 2D on the DVD release or on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or the Microsoft Store. On Blu-ray... It is available in 3D for those of you with 3D Blu-ray players and 3D television sets. Fancy. (laughs) Well, folks, hopefully you can watch along in 2 or 3D. (laughs) You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss House of Wax from 1953, directed by Andre de Toth. See you on the other side, everybody. back everyone to scream scene we just finished watching house of wax from 1953 directed by andre de toth sarah what did you think i really enjoyed this movie yeah it's real good had a really fun time um it's it's spooky scary uh a little gratuitous at times with some things but i liked it yeah i mean horror is only going to get more gratuitous as the 20th century progresses, so... Yeah. I can see why critics at the time 
might have seen this movie as kind of old-fashioned and hokey, what with, like, science fiction being the new cool kid at the table. But... If you look at, like, The Black Castle, for mm-hmm. example, or even The Strange Door, yeah, those, I don't know if I would call hokey, but are definitely old-fashioned. Yeah. Whereas this, it, it feels like this is a, a re-energization of some of those tropes. Well, and one advantage I think we have living 70 years later is that all of these movies are hokey and old-fashioned from our perspective. So we can just kind of take them as they are and enjoy them. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, speaking of re-energization, the basic plot beats of this hew pretty closely to Mystery at the Wax Museum. It's been a while since we've watched that movie, but I wouldn't be surprised if, like, lines of dialogue were, like, exactly the same. They absolutely were. Yeah. I I have a brain that tells me these things. (laughs) It definitely is. But it's probably a good idea to do the plot summary anyway, because enough stuff is different, or at least the emphasis is in different places, that it does come out to be a unique story. Definitely. Um, The 33 Mystery of the Wax Museum had a lot of, like, subplots and a lot of things going on. Um, House of Wax is a lot more focused. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I agree. I think it's definitely worth going through the plot summary, which I will do now. You know what's wild about House of Wax having, like, cut down all those subplots and, like, being a much more, like, focused, like, straightforward version of the story? What? It's 11 minutes longer. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> huh. As Ben mentioned in the context setting, the film's new time period is like turn of the century. And we're also the whole time in New York. The 33 film restarted in London in 1921, and then it's like 13 right. years later or whatever. Um, so we come across Professor Henry Jared, who is Vincent Price. He's a wax sculptor who puts emphasis on history and notable historical events rather than the sensationalist content found in other wax museums like their Chamber of Horrors, which is a real thing. I cover the history of wax museums and such in episode 38 on Mystery of the Wax Museum. It's pretty cool. It's pretty dope. Go listen to it and come back. Welcome back. (laughs) Um, With Jared focusing more on history and more of the, like, educational museum rather than entertainment museum aspect of it. And also, like, beauty as the aesthetic instead of, like, the grotesque. Absolutely. Um, his business partner, Matthew Burke, is, is getting kind of fed up. He wants to be bought out, so Jared lines up another investor named Sidney Wallace to come see his statues, and uh, Sidney Wallace is, like, super excited about it. But he's going to Egypt for three months, so they'll finalize the details when he gets back. Um, That's too long of a wait for Burke, so he goes to burn down the museum for insurance money. Uh, He fights with Jared, um, because Jared's like, these are my children, like, you can't burn them, What, what the fuck? And they have a good long fist fight, but ultimately Burke leaves Jared for dead as the fire rages with, uh, the gas lines going and the whole building explodes. 
Burke is now lined up to get all of the insurance money, but things get delayed because they can't find the body of Jared. But eventually, he does get the money. And that night that things are finally wrapped up in courts, in insurance courts, yeah, um, he is attacked by a disfigured man who murders Burke and then makes it look like Burke committed suicide by hanging himself down an elevator shaft. And the thing here is, like, we aren't saving this man's disfigurement for, like, a third act reveal. It's no. just here, right in the first act, along with his, like, Phantom of the Opera ass, like, cloak and hat. <laughs> the next night, Burke's fiance Kathy, is murdered. Um, she is found by her roommate, Sue, um, who discovers the body. She's clearly dead. And as Sue turns on the light, the disfigured man is also in the room. So Sue runs away. She's chased by the disfigured man, and she makes it all the way across town to um, her boyfriend, basically. Her boyfriend, Scott's place. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's clear that they're, like, seeing each other, but it's also not, like, really... um pushed like they aren't fiance and i don't think i don't remember even seeing them kiss no the relationship is clearly that like they grew up together because their parents their mom both their moms were friends mm -hmm. or something but like it's clear that like you know they'll be married yeah like they're clearly meant to be our romantic pair the movie just doesn't emphasize it and i suspect the reason why is because from this point on in the story she's staying with them and probably someone at the censor board raised some eyebrows about like the two of them staying in the same house while not being married or something it, so it's we're just his like mother's house yeah like, but she's like there right but like i think that's why it's de-emphasized that's all the next day sue goes to the police and her description of the disfigured man doesn't match anyone <laughs> in the records. They'd be like, the cops were like, yeah, we would know if someone looked like that. We have a guy who's like half of his face is like that. We don't have anyone whose whole face is like that. <laughs> this isn't Paris. Or Gotham City. Or Gotham City. But they do share with Sue that Kathy's body was stolen from the morgue that night, the previous night. Meanwhile... Sidney Wallace is back in New York from his expedition, and he goes to this new house of wax after receiving a letter from Jared, who we see is alive, but in a wheelchair with disfigured hands. And he explains to Wallace that, yeah, I'm doing a new museum, this time I'm going to go for the sensationalist stuff, going to go for the Chamber of Horrors, and because I can't make things myself, I have my two pupils here, Leon and Igor. One of these names is not like the other. <laughs> I direct them in making the sculptures. And Wallace is like, cool, I'm interested in investing in your thing. By the way, there's an up-and-coming sculptor in town named Scott, um, who you should meet. When House of Wax opens, Sue and Scott go there to check it out. It's the new newest thing in town, and Scott is the aforementioned sculptor. As Jared, Scott, and Wallace are talking about Scott becoming a, an assistant, another pupil under Jared, Sue starts to look at one of the figures, the Joan of Arc figure, and she realizes that it looks eerily, just like way too on the nose, similar to Kathy. Mm -hmm. Now, Jared says, oh no, I saw her picture in the paper. 
that's that's why she looks like your friend. But Sue isn't fully convinced. Yeah, there's like a lot of weird details. Like, like why would you keep your, her one pierced ear when it's not like Joan of Arc had pierced ears? That's well, a little weird. Have. But like, one like a pirate, it's a little <laughs> weird. Because Sue can't get over this, she does go to the police to be like, Hey, this was a weird thing. Can you check it out? And the cops are like, sure. And they do. Um... While the cops are at House of Wax, they recognize some of the other figures looking similar looking similar to other bodies that have, have been stolen from the morgue. Yeah. And they also recognize one of the assistants, Leon, as um, someone who was recently released from prison and has, like, disappeared while out on parole. Yeah. One of the uh, exhibits in the Chamber of Horrors is even, like, a wax figure of Burke hanging from the neck in the elevator shaft. Because, His body was also stolen, so yes. I wonder. Huh. Yeah, and, like, this is kind of covered by the idea that, like, the Chamber of Horrors has, you know, your traditional historical horror figures like um, Bluebeard and stuff, but then also is supposed to be, like, continually updated with, like, the latest, like, grisly crime people, basically. The latest crime people. Yeah. The police go and bring in Leon to ask him some questions, and he, he spills the whole beans. But that part is intercut with Sue waiting after hours um, outside the House of Wax because they're supposed to go out on a date. It's her birthday. Scott, meanwhile, has been sent out for an errand, basically so that Jared can have Sue alone. Mm-hmm. As Sue is wandering through the dark museum, she goes up to the Joan of Arc figure and just goes to inspect it a little bit more closely, and she pulls off a wig to reveal Kathy's real hair. And that's the evidence she needed that this is for real Kathy. Coming up behind her is Jared in his wheelchair. He's like, it's unfortunate you did that, Sue. I'm quite fond of you. You look just... Just like my Marie Antoinette figure, um, so closely, in fact, that I think I shall immortalize you. Mm -hmm. Um, Sue goes to run away, and that's when Jared stands up from his chair and chases after her, and Igor blocks her path, and they kidnap her, basically, take her down to the basement where she is going to be covered in wax. And during the struggle, she um, manages, she like punches Jared in the face, basically, and his head like cracks open because it's just a wax mask. And of course, he is the disfigured man. Yes. I can't believe I almost forgot to mention that. <laughs> so Scott, meanwhile, has come back from his errand and he's like, Where's Sue? And he goes in and he's looking around and then he gets attacked by Igor. So they get into a good fist fight. Um, one of the exhibits is of the French Revolution, with the guillotine, and Igor, after kind of getting Scott knocked out a little bit, goes to remove the dummy and put Scott under the guillotine. Uh, and I was just like, oh boy, what are we going to get? But that's when the cops come in, because if you recall, as I said, Leon spilled the beans. So the cops come in, they rescue Scott, and then they go down to save Sue. There's some good fistfight stuff between Jared and the cops, and eventually Jared gets pushed into the vat of boiling wax. The next scene is we are at the police station, just kind of wrapping everything up. 
and uh, yeah, it's uh, that's kind of where it ends. It ends yeah. with um, uh, Charles Bronson's like wax figurehead um, being held up into the camera, being like, "Look at this guy." <laughs> but everybody's fine. <laughs> well, not everybody. Everybody who wasn't a bad guy. Fair enough. So yeah, like I I said, like it follows the beats of Wax Museum pretty closely, and that makes the things that are different really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of really neat small little details throughout this movie. A lot of um, attention paid to characterization, like Kathy, who dies really early in the movie. She's played by Carolyn Jones, and she's so memorable. Yeah. As a character, because she is this, like, airheaded gold digger. Yeah. Who, like, is just out to, like, you know, date old rich men. And, like, after Burke hangs himself, like, she was his fiance, and she's just like, oh, well, like, on to someone else. Yeah. Um, so you really, like, remember her through the movie. Or, like, you know, looking at some of the other differences, um, the character of Leon who everyone had a different name in the original. Mm-hmm. But in the original Wax Museum, he... So the way that they get Leon to spill the beans in this movie is because he's an alcoholic. Yeah. So they basically, like, keep him, you know, locked Sober. up until he starts getting the shakes real bad and then, like, tempt him with alcohol, right? It's, uh... Ooh. Yeah, it's a little troubling. In the original, the equivalent of that character was a drug addict. And so, you know, now it's an alcoholic because it's 1953 and the production code says you can't mention drugs, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, that also then brings me to the other thing that's an interesting shift from 1933 to 1953, which is the treatment of the police. Yeah. Because in the 33 version, the police are basically idiots and they need to have everything, like, explained to them and they need to be, like, drawn around, you know, by the nose by Spunky Girl Reporter, played by Glenda Farrell, right? Yeah. In this version, there is no girl reporter, and the police are completely competent. Not only, like, follow all the clues and put everything together themselves, but, like, they listen to all the characters throughout the movie. You know, even when Sue comes in and she's like, hey, I think maybe my friend's body was covered in wax and used for an exhibit in this museum. Like, they're like, hmm, okay, we'll look into that. And then they do... You know, and they follow all the clues. And I feel like this is really representative of a big shift in American media's portrayal of and the American public's relationship with police 1930s versus 1950s. You know, because in the 30s, you're talking about an era where, like, everyone's poor. So cops are the bad guys because cops protect property and you're poor and have none. By the 50s, we're now into, you know, the era of, well, everyone has a house in suburbia and everyone's doing all right. And, like, the middle class has risen up due to, like, you know, good social policies and so on and so forth. And, like, you know, the cop is our friend. He keeps, like, social order and, like, we respect authority here in the 1950s. Yeah. Right? So it's this big sort of social shift in how we view police uh, that you can really see. Because the story is so otherwise similar, right? Yeah, I think also with the 40s having film noir, Mm -hmm. you know, gritty detective investigative type stories, not necessarily starring police, but the 
what police do in terms of keeping order but also investigating things is shown, I think maybe that's influencing why, like, their portrayal is like, yeah, they know what to do. We know that their job is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, just these, like, little little things, you know? Yeah. The way that they've focused House of Wax by eliminating some characters, merging some together, like mm-hmm. Kathy and the, like, famous model of the 1933 yeah, one. Yeah, and, and um, Sue is, like... Faye Ray's character and Glenda Farrell's character. Yeah, well, not not even. Like, she's Faye Ray's character. Glenda Farrell's character doesn't exist. Right, but, like, the investigative work that Glenda Farrell's character does for, like, hey, this body is the body that was stolen from the morgue and stuff, that all goes to Sue. That's fair. Um, I think it really tightens up the script. The one potential weakness that it has in tightening these things up, so we're led to believe that Jared is dead. Like, mm-hmm. there's no body, of course, and, you know, people in the know will know that that means that he's alive somewhere. But as far as we know, he's dead. And then we see a disfigured man, just full on the disfigurement, it's not, as Ben said, it's not hidden or anything, going and attacking Burke. And so, you know, maybe because we know the story, we were like, yeah, here we go, here's Jared mm-hmm. doing his thing. But would the average moviegoer at the time know that that's him. The, like, no, because we get we still get the reveal. Yeah, the movie is structured as if that's, like, a big reveal. But I feel like you're right. Like, if there's kind of a weakness here, I can't believe anyone in the audience would have been shocked unless they weren't, like, really paying attention. Because, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, this guy was left to die in a horrible fire. His body was never found. Now this, like, horrific burn victim has come to kill the guy who left the first guy in the fire. Yeah. This horrific burn victim murderer guy has, like, two assistants who are helping him, like, steal bodies from the morgue. And they're, like, similarly dressed in, like, black cloaks and shit. Cut to, hey, it's that guy who died in the fire, except he's alive in, like, a wheelchair, and he has these two assistants helping him make sculptures. Like, so maybe the... people were like, oh, maybe it's a red herring then, that yeah. they thought it was him. Yeah, it could have been they were trying to play, like, well, maybe it's Leon, maybe it's Igor, or whatever, but I feel like the math still just kind of adds up to what gets revealed. I think anyone really paying attention would have known. They still pull off the reveal very well. Like, it's oh, all yeah. very good. I think, you know, speaking of choosing to have the full disfigured face throughout the whole movie, I think the thing I really enjoyed the most that made this movie really work is the strength of its convictions. Mm-hmm. Like, this movie commits to being gruesome. It commits to threatening its characters. The violence in this movie has bite. You know, we see blood. We see violence. We have murders on screen. We have corpses. We have the horribly scarred villain right here in the first act, right? Like In, like, the third scene. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's just so good to see a horror movie that just sort of dives into the deep end and goes for it without any hesitation. Like Absolutely. Other than Thing from Another World, I think the last time we saw a horror movie that kind of went this hard was back when like Val Luton was making them. But even in Luton's cases, like his films were about like the horror of the unseen. And this is just like 
No, you see it. Yeah, He's exactly. He's right there. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a bit of a shock. Yeah, I I think even with some of the exhibits of the museum, um, they were really, really well done. Some of them were very, like, gruesome in the way that you're like, oh no, a mannequin is in a guillotine, but also kind of gruesome still. Um, one thing that they did very well, and I thought was very cool, is when Sue is wandering through the museum at night, and she's still not sure if Joan of Arc is Kathy, um, she's looking around the museum, and sometimes when we see the figures, they're played by real people, and other times they're played by mannequins. And yeah. they even do that with Joan of Arc and Kathy throughout the film. Like, whenever there's a close-up of next to Joan of Arc, I'm pretty sure that that's, like, Kathy. Right, that's Carolyn Jones standing there. But then when they do a close-up when the when Jared or Scott is around, they look and it looks like a mannequin. Right. Um, Almost like gaslighting the audience a little bit. Yeah, it's, you know, speaking of the movie's willingness to go gruesome and also the wax figures, this movie figures out the, um, like, 90s Saturday morning cartoon trick, which is that you can get away with a lot of gruesome violence if it's not towards real people. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> the scene where his first wax museum burns down at the start of the movie, like, we get these long, lingering shots of the wax figures melting, and, like, because of their construction, it's like the wax skin melts off this, like, white kind of, like, core statue, so it really looks like people with their faces melting off, and, like, like right the glass... The last right, and, like, the glass eyes are, like, popping out of the sockets and stuff. Yeah, it's... It, it definitely is, like, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, but with these wax figures, and they just get away with it because, well, those aren't people. I was very impressed with how much shadow was in this movie. Mm -hmm. In past episodes where we've had color mm -hmm. as kind of a gimmick, I'm thinking, like, the climax or whatever, everything has been very bright. Yeah, it's really hard to get those dark shadows in Technicolor. And then even with like what you have to do with the 3D process that you outlined in the context setting, I was like, I, I don't know if we're even going to get shadows, but they really do them well here. Yeah, the movie looks like how you want this movie to look. Mm -hmm. Like... If anything, that's such a great way to sum up this movie. This movie is exactly what you want it to be. It doesn't pull the bullshit that so many horror B-movies pull, where it's like the poster is like, you know, some snarling monster with a, a gal draped across his arms and like a killer with a knife like stabbing a dude in the face. <laughs> and then like you watch the movie and it's like 50 minutes of like, two people in suits and one dame like talking in a living room and then like 10 minutes where like the lights go out and you hear a scream and then like five minutes where like a bad mask is pulled off a dude and a cop explains the plot to you like this movie gives you all the things you want to see going in i also really like the um little meta textual stuff of leaning into the the sensationalism. Yeah, it's, it's... Because, yeah, so Jared, he's like, okay, I'll open up to the Chamber of Horrors, I'll make some money, I'll be sensational. And that's what this movie is doing with the 3D. Yes. There's a whole sequence I skipped, there's two sequences <laughs> I skipped, where when the House of Wax is opening, there's a man with a ping pong 
well, three ping-pongs, and, like, that ball's coming right at the audience. And um, to kind of cheer Sue up, Scott takes her to a can-can bar. Mm-hmm. Is a that music hall. A music hall. But they, they're doing the can-can, and those legs are coming right at you. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk a bit more about those sequences, but you're right that this movie does a really interesting metatextual thing about, like, art versus sensationalism and, like, integrity versus gimmicks when, like, this is an in- a sensationalist gimmick movie, right? Yeah. Um, so speaking of the 3D part of this movie in general, between the first half of the episode and now, I have shown Sarah a picture of what this camera rig looks like. I still don't understand how it works, but it is it does look very cool. Um, this movie has, like, crane shots. This movie has, like, one shot that looks like it's, like, handheld. Like, they picked the camera up and were holding it because it's, like, a little bit, you know, shaky. Like, this movie has shots where it's like, how did you do that with this camera setup? Because this is, as I remind you, two cameras facing each other with an angled mirror in the center... And all of those things have to be, like, locked off and perfectly aligned with each other for anything to work. So, like, it's all on, like, a rig that, like, locks them all together. And it just looks like there's no way you could pick that up. Um, There's a lot of really great jump scares where things, like, pop up in the foreground or, like, get thrown right at the audience or Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like, things that just are designed to make the audience kind of, like, duck and scream. There's one really cool part where uh, Igor, like, Scott is wandering through the House of Wax at night looking for Sue. And when Igor finds him to attack him, Igor comes into the frame from center foreground. Like, from where the camera is, yeah, yeah, into the frame. So in 3D, what that looks like is that Igor has, like, run out from, like, the aisle in the, like, theater audience into the movie. Yeah, um, it's it's cool. And most of these things that are done with, like, the shadows or with, like, throwing things at the camera or whatever are very well integrated into the story. Like, if you're watching for them, you know, when you're watching it now in 2020 and you're seeing it in 2D, um, if you're watching for them, you'll go, oh, that was meant to be a 3D thing, right? But... I feel like if you weren't specifically looking for them, a lot of them you wouldn't notice. They would just seem natural. Mm-hmm. The two exceptions are the two sequences you just mentioned because they're so gratuitous. Yeah. The scene with the Barker doing the ping pong stuff, like he's out in front of the house of wax and he's doing the like, come on, come all to the house of wax kind of deal. Yeah. And these are, um, to be clear, these are like the paddles where the ball is on the string attached to the paddle so that you can like bounce them back and forth. And he's just like at a furious pace, like bouncing them right into the camera where the ball's like coming, like what seems like inches away from the camera lens. So that, you know, the effect in 3d is that the ball's coming right at you constantly Honestly, some of it is pretty clever and fourth wall breaking because, like, he's playing to an audience in the movie, but we are also the audience. So, like, at one point he's, like, ping-ponging it right at the audience while saying stuff like, I'm just aiming for your popcorn bag there and, like, things like that, right? The problem with it is that it just goes on for way too long. Just a little too long. And it ends up reminding me too much of... 
Monster Chiller Horror Theater, which is a running skit from the classic Canadian sketch comedy series, SCTV. (laughs) Yeah. So, Monster Chiller Horror Theater, if you don't know it, is basically a parody of what used to be a very common thing on TV, because SCTV was a parody of television. And what you used to have a lot of was, you know, late night horror shows that basically showed, like, old, cheaply licensed horror movies like this one uh, with, like, a host. It would be, like, you know, and these would be local to, like, your station, right? So the joke on SCTV is it's the news anchor, Floyd Robinson, uh, dressed up as a vampire named Count Floyd <laughs> presenting <laughs> presenting the movies. And the gag in all of these is that most of them are in 3D. And in the sketch version of these, the 3D would be something like a character would pick up like a bottle of wine and be like, ah, yes, what a fine vintage, don't you think? And then like thrust it into the camera and then like pull it back and then thrust it into the camera again and then pull it back with this like music sting that went like, doo, doo. Sure. And that's what this ping pong thing reminded me of, right? It just, it's, it's unfortunate when a movie starts to remind you too much of its parodies, right? Absolutely. Jared has a, a really fun line uh, when Sidney Wallace, the investor, is like, really a barker? Like a ping pong guy? And Jared's like, yes, I, I, th- I don't think we'll need him after we get established. He's just to bring the crowds in. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, this 3D thing is kind of just to bring the crowds in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're trying to lampshade it a little bit because I think they recognize that the scene is gratuitous. The other gratuitous scene the unnecessary stop at the music hall for the can-can dance, I think that's even worse. Because, yeah. like, so the joke... <laughs> Their of, legs are coming, and then, like, her butt comes yeah, in. Yeah, right it's, at it's, you. Oof. And the thing is, is, like, yeah, even the movie itself knows these scenes are kind of a stretch and tries to lampshade them, but I think the reason the can-can scene is worse is because it's way more inappropriate in the context of the story. Like... The justification for it is that, like, you know, Sue is super traumatized after her best friend was murdered and she was chased around town by, like, a creepy, disfigured serial killer. So her boyfriend has brought her to this music hall to, like, you know, as something fun to do to restore her sense of normalcy. The the rationale is supposed to be like, you know, yeah, you're super traumatized, so I took you to a strip club to get your mind off of it. That's, like, super weird. It's weird, yeah. Um, But the shallow indulgence in like completely non-motivated sex appeal does certainly prefigure a lot of future horror movies. Yeah, I would agree. And I mean it it's 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 a little long, but it's not like oh my god, like we're seeing like full like dances on screen. Yeah. You know? They're and doing the can can, we cut to the table and we come back to the can can and then we leave. It's completely unnecessary, but at least it's sort of kept tongue-in-cheek and in good humor. Yeah. Um, Speaking of tongue-in-cheek, so Vincent Price. Yes. So Price is, of course, the best cast member here. But what I thought was interesting is, like, his performance is very good, and it's a lot of fun. And he is definitely the kind of actor you want for these roles. Like, you're trained, eloquent, you know, actor who can really, like, sell like, a lot of this kind of, um, 
over-the-top kind of dialogue. <laughs> um, he is really indulging with the fact that his character has a lot of, like, eloquent speeches. So he's really, like, giving all those words, like, everything they deserve, basically. But what I noticed here is he's basically playing the role straight. Like, he's not... Yeah, he's not trying to choose scenery like Charles Lawton in The Strange Door. He's not anywhere near the height of camp that he will ascend to later in his career. Um, and that makes sense. Well, and that comes back to what I was saying about the movie's strength of its convictions, right? Like, it's not... It knows it's a fun movie, but it doesn't try to undercut the horror with, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, none of this is real. Yeah, it felt like the, between, like, the ping-pong stuff, the can-can, and even moments of comedy, mm-hmm. where, like, the soundtrack changes, those felt like breaths of air before you go back down into the pool of horror. Right. Like, where everything else is. Yes. It truly felt like this is how you want to be doing comedic relief, not, like, an ongoing, like... I just think of, like, the the reporter in Dr. X where we had full scenes of him just like goofing off in a closet. Yeah, because like he's a running character throughout the movie, right? Yeah. Um so yeah, Vincent Price is great. Yes. So growing up, you know Vincent Price. Like mm-hmm. you know his whole deal between the thriller music video and then stuff in Batman sixty six and Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands, like you get it. But I never really got why people were like imitating his voice to narrate things. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of got it with Thriller, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really get why with him. And in House of Wax, you get it. Right. So he's taking the crowds through, especially in the Chamber of Horrors, and he's narrating, saying, like, this is when, like, um, I I forget the names, but, like, you know in the French Revolution, the chick stabs the guy in the bathtub? Yeah, yeah. Like, he's got all these exhibits and he's doing the tour guide thing. The ladies are like, oh, I can't believe a woman would commit such a crime. And he says something along the lines of, like, yes, he was very embarrassed because <laughs> he's in the bathtub. And just that kind of, like, quippy, punny narration to things. Right, but with that, like, undercurrent of, like, dark comedy, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's like the, the, the gallows humor. Yeah. Now I understand why it's with Vincent Price. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, so obviously he's the best, but I do want to single out Phyllis Kirk. I thought she did a really admirable job of trying to portray Sue as, like, a real human being. Yes. Whose, like, terror and trauma are very real. Yeah, I think she did a fantastic job at that. Even her screams, um, not at favorite levels, but really no one can reach those levels. She does very well here. Yeah, and and really what I liked more was just the way she plays the character between horror scenes, where it's still clear that she's like super shaken up about it all the time, Um, which again really helps sell the horror as genuine, right? Yeah. Unfortunately... A lot of her performance gets undercut by the performance of Paul Picherny as her love interest, as as Scott. Because he's just like a typical airheaded horror movie hero, constantly treating his girlfriend's worries like they're nothing, like she's being silly. Uh, you know, he, he's never really perturbed by anything. He's always cracking jokes. Like, even at the end of the film, after the cops rescue them, she's like... 
yeah, I don't want to think about any of this ever again. Let's go. And he's like, ha ha, every time I shave, I think of that guillotine. Ha ha ha. And it's just like, I hate these guys. I hate these guys so much. You can thank David Manners for that. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, it comes right back to like the music hall scene where she's like, oh yeah, it was so horrifying to find my best friend's body lying there dead in her bed. And he's like, ha ha ha, look at these sexy ladies. It'll help you take your mind off it. Ha ha ha. Um... We already mentioned that Carolyn Jones is a lot of fun. Yeah, I really liked her character. But definitely from a modern perspective, the real fun of this movie is just how much Charles Bronson is in it as mute Igor. Oh, absolutely. So many moments where I'm like, I can't believe Charles fucking Bronson got his movie start in House of Wax. It is a real treat. Yeah, he's, he's, it's hilarious because he's so young. But they've done this, like, makeup job on him to try and make him look scarier. Where they've tried to give him, like, the sunken-in cheeks and the sunken-in eyes. But it just makes him look more like Charles Bronson. Yeah, Yeah, older Charles Bronson. Yeah. Like, uh, at least I'm familiar with. Yeah. Because that's exactly where he ages. Like, he gets a little bit of, like, the the cheeks and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite funny. And it's just wild to see him in, like, a non-speaking role. Yeah. Um, you know, cause he's got that really iconic voice. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things for, that makes like old movies really fun is when you find someone who becomes like really famous in just like some small little role in some small little movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I really liked this movie. I think, um, the makeup for the face was really, really well done. Yeah. Did you like... Vincent Price's makeup better than Lionel Atwell's? What What do you think? I think I liked this. I don't really remember Lionel Atwell's, probably because we don't really get to see it except for like 10 minutes at the end. They're kind of similar in design, but I think Price's looks more realistic. Um, Lionel Atwell's sort of looks like if you had a painting of a face, like an oil painting of a face, and, and then melted. you... <laughs> and then you like took a... a, a rag and you like smushed it into the face and just kind of like rotated it a little bit and then took it away like that's what it looks like um whereas he he doesn't look like that like botched like jesus christ (laughs) he doesn't look like that (laughs) but yeah i think price's makeup looks really good and it, it especially looks good for the fact that it does have to be through the entire movie. Yeah, he has to talk with it. He has mm-hmm. to be able to wear it while running. Yeah, he does a lot of stunt work in this movie because, like... They the... couldn't get away with stunts. Right, because with the, the 3D, you know, and the color and the two cameras and everything, they couldn't get away with using stunt doubles. So all the actors are having to do their own stunts, and they're finding, like, creative ways around it. But, like, Price really is, like... Leaping off of buildings and running down streets and, like, doing all of these fight scenes. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie, Ben. It's dope as hell. I think it's super enjoyable after the kind of long stretch of meh movies we've had lately. Yeah. So do you want to look at ranking this? I think I can definitely say that it's going above Mystery of the Wax Museum. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an easy one. (laughs) I... Like I said, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I knew it was definitely better than Mystery of the Wax Museum. So then I went to Dr. X 
at sure. 65. Sure. And I feel like House of Wax is better than that. So mm-hmm. I kept moving up. Um, I think it's better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the oh, for houses. Sure. And then I got to the Black Room. And I was like, okay, here feels like the Black Room at 42. I would not put this below the yeah, Black Room. So for sure. that's my floor. Then when I started looking for my ceiling, you know, we have some really great films in here. We have Freaks. We have um, The Man Who Changed His Mind. And we have Leopard Man, <laughs> um, which, you know, has a serial killer, um, has another kind of stalking through the night sequence like we have in here. So I'm feeling like around the Leopard Man at 34 feels like a good spot but I kind of kept looking up, and I felt like the nineteen forty nine Queen of Spades at thirty two felt like um, a good place to stop. That movie was very well done. It was very serious. It was very um, realistic, is what I mean to say, instead of serious. And yeah, I I, I felt like kind of my range is thirty two to forty two, which I know is quite a bit of a range, but it's also kind of amorphous. That's really funny. Because your ceiling is my floor. Oh, <laughs> cool. Well, so, what's your ceiling then? So I started working my way up the same as you. And what I was thinking about the whole time was what I was saying about this movie's convictions. And I was looking for horror movies that had those convictions and like were following through on their promises and like going for it. And so I made my way up and up and up. And I, I passed by the Leopard Man because the Leopard Man sort of is is fine, but it's a little weak for a Luton movie. It kind of botches some things. And I went past Dead of Night, and then I got to Queen of Spades. And the thing that I sort of came down upon with Queen of Spades versus this is, like, the haunting scene in Queen of Spades is, like, really good. There is sometimes the feeling watching that movie that it's slightly ashamed to be a movie with a ghost in it. Sure. Like, where it's it's trying really hard to just go for, like, respectable, period drama with some spooky elements and house of wax doesn't give a shit about any of that (laughs) and uh so i made queen of spades my floor because then right above queen of spades is the uninvited which is good as hell and then i kept looking up for my ceiling and where my eyes settled was at 27 the phantom of the opera yeah because the 1925 phantom of the opera just really has the same you know, Grand Guignol feeling that this movie has. And I think also similar to this movie, the 1925 Phantom of the Opera gives you what you want when you walk into a movie called Phantom of the Opera. Just as like House of Wax, I think, gives you exactly what you want. In some ways, I even like House of Wax a little better because Phantom of the Opera has so much going on Mm -hmm. and House of Wax is so focused and I think in some ways Vincent Price's character here is maybe a little better at being a horror movie villain than Lon Chaney's Phantom, who is a great character nonetheless. So I wanted to give the possibility that this was better than Phantom. But right above Phantom, we have movies like The Walking Dead and Mad Love and Nosferatu and Cabin of Dr. Caligari and stuff where it's like, these are movies that are kind of in a stratosphere that House of Wax doesn't quite reach. So my range ended up being 27 to 32. Yeah. Yeah, I think you make a good point about the Queen of Spades. 
I feel like the uninvited seventh victim, vampire, Canada Canary, Phantom of the Opera all have those convictions that you're going for. Um, I I hesitate about putting House of Wax above things like Vampire and Cat in the Canary, even Seventh Victim, because those films don't feel so gimmicky. Sure. <laughs> Do you want to um, split the difference then and just put this below Queen of Spades, above Dead of Night? No, I think you've convinced, convinced me about putting it above Queen of Spades. I just don't know about, like, the uninvited and everything above that. For sure. Well, I think because, like, your ceiling was my floor, I think we should be zeroing in at that area. Okay. So what about just below the uninvited above Queen of Spades? Love it. Cool. So entering the list at the new number 32 is House of Wax from 1953, directed by Andre de Toth. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, you can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and on whatever podcast app you use, subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out a lot if you leave a rating or a review on one of those services uh, due to the algorithmic nature of how the internet promotes things. But other ways that you can help us out include just sharing the show on social media and letting people know about it when you're you know, hearing a good episode, sharing it with your friends, uh, or if you have the means, heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, becoming a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at higher levels get access to exclusive bonus content, and as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we're working towards our first Patreon goal, which will enable us to do extra bonus episodes on horror-adjacent films. So once again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Well, Ben, we finally had a horror movie. Right. Took us four weeks, but <laughs> we finally did it. Um, what is in line for us next week? Well, next week, Sarah, we are back at Universal. Okay. And they are trying 3D. Okay. And they have learned their lesson because next week's movie, Sarah, it came from outer space. Ooh. Ooh. Awesome. <laughs> so we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.